Thanks, Ben. That was really great, really great. Good morning and welcome again to Hiawatha Church, as uh, Jonah and Peter said. Uh, we're really glad you're here. My name is Spencer. I am uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, yeah, Merry Christmas. Uh, We've got some snow. It's December. There's, uh, yeah, thanks again to the uh, people who decorated the sanctuary. I am not sure everyone who did it, but um, it looks fantastic. So nice, nice job. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question as we get started. Have you ever noticed just how terrified we are to be known? Like, like truly known, like fully known. To have other people know exactly who we are, fully who we are. So whether it's through uh, Instagram or social media, whether it's putting on filters so people see that the best versions of ourselves, or maybe we, we post a picture about uh, us being the perfect family. This is the picture that goes up, but in reality, this is our family uh, most of the time. Or maybe it's the clothes we wear. We try to dress up or uh, put on, you know, not just sweatpants or, you know, get fancy clothes so people see something respectable or something that they are impressed with. Or we wear makeup. We do our hair. We uh, have manners. We practice lots of self-control because what's truly on the inside uh, needs self-control and manners and politeness to keep uh, from what's inside to come out or, or to keep people, um, f- make them like us. Or whether we put our money into our jobs or our titles at work or our, the cars we drive or our homes, we really want to put on a facade in, in a lot of ways. We're actually terrified that people will fully and truly know who we are, our past, our secrets, our motives, our hearts, because we're afraid that we'll be judged and we'll be disregarded and unaccepted. This morning, uh, we're going to continue our sermon series in the the Gospel of John. So uh, John was one of Jesus' disciples, and he was an eyewitness there, and he's writing about uh, Jesus' life, his ministry, his his, uh, miracles, and his death and resurrection and ascension. We are just in chapter 2. Uh, We're just getting started, and today we're entitling the sermon Fully Known. We're going to see how Jesus fully knows you, how he knows humanity and what's inside of them, and the consequences of that being good or bad news. We're going to look at John 2, 23 through 25. Um, I think Pastor Chris has been saying, Spencer, your sermons are way too long, so I'm just going to give you three verses. How can you preach a long sermon on three verses and uh, just watch me. So this, this is going to be my uh, 55. We're going to challenge Jesse Splann's longest sermon right here, just uh, with three verses. All right, if you want to follow along on the screen, you can. It's also on the inside of your uh, worship folders. John 2, 23 starts off by saying, Now when uh, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So right off the bat, our our first verse says that Jesus is doing miracles. Jesus is doing signs, and the crowds are responding. Many believe in Jesus. They believe that he is divine, or at the very least, he is sent from God, because who else can do the miracles that he is doing. Who else can command a nature and nature listens? Who else can touch the unclean, diseased person and he doesn't become ceremonially unclean, but rather the 
diseased person becomes clean and healed? Who can raise the dead? Who can feed thousands of people with just a little bit of food? He must be from God, or he must even be divine himself. And so we see the crowds, at least many people, it says in verse 23, believed in his name, believed in the person of Jesus because they saw the signs that he was doing. And so is this, you know, just uh, people in the crowd kind of liking what they see? Is this true belief? Is this true saving faith? Um, Maybe. We're we're not fully sure. We'll kind of continue to see how the story goes in John. Um, Jesus hasn't yet died on the cross. He hasn't uh, risen from the tomb yet. So the gospel hasn't fully come into the world yet. But there's no reason to think that these are uh, not true believers. They, They see Jesus. They believe that he's sent from God, that he is God. And, yeah, and they are trusting in his name. And so, if that is you, and, and for, for, for many of us, that is part of our story. It's okay to uh, believe because of what you've seen. It's okay to believe because of what you've seen. For, for, for many of us, maybe it's an actual miracle, or maybe it's just we've had a profound spiritual experience. Or maybe we saw just something that we could not explain otherwise. Or maybe feel like God spoke to us and we just cannot deny it. He opened up our eyes and gave us a new heart. Or maybe we've seen healings or seen answered prayers or even uh, miracles. Or we've experienced love or forgiveness or community or compassion or generosity from other Christians that we have never experienced anywhere else in the world. And that profound experience seemed like a great sign and is something God used to bring you to faith, or to keep you in faith, or to strengthen your faith. So to say that uh, seeing a sign, seeing Jesus doing something powerfully, even miraculously, should not lead to faith is, is, is just not true. Uh, it's okay to believe because of what you have seen. And we might, right off the bat, start to think, uh, well, these were, you know, ancient people. These were very unintelligent people. This was 2,000 years ago. They were just quite skeptical. You could do, you know, a, a sleight of hand or some allusion to them, and they just figure it out. So maybe you're just unimpressed uh, when you hear that people saw what Jesus was doing, and they believed. Maybe you just think, well, of course they believed. They're a bunch of, you know, foolish people that lived 2,000 years ago in the backwoods of Galilee, you might say. But the first believers, these these people that are checking out Jesus, that do believe uh, after seeing Jesus do these signs and miracles, these first believers too were very skeptical. It's very easy for us to look down on them or to think that they are unintelligent, but these believers that are now trusting in Jesus were also very skeptical themselves. They weren't looking for this type of Messiah that Jesus actually was. And they were wondering, is he a miracle worker? Is he like John the Baptist? Who is he? Is he actually God? They weren't even looking for God to become a human and enter into human history. And for a first century Jew, the people that were believing in Jesus, they had a great, great spiritual risk if they were wrong. These people that now believe in Jesus, if they're wrong, they are risking everything. They're risking everything. They're risking being kicked out of their synagogue and losing their, their spiritual mentors and their, their priests. They're at risk of being kicked out of their family, right? If you reject the Jewish faith, which is tied up with the Jewish ethnicity, 
then uh, you're probably going to be kicked out of not just your synagogue, but also uh, lose your family. To believe in a man who was claiming to be God was just as crazy to them 2,000 years ago as it would be today, as if someone stood up and said, I am God, I am divine. But not only that, we see, we see as the story continues, uh, Jesus' disciples didn't just believe, but this turned into action. This belief was real and changed their lives. Jesus' disciples stopped following the law. They stopped offering animal sacrifices continually. They stopped worrying about purification and washing and staying religiously clean. They stopped attending synagogue and worshiping at the physical temple. They stopped observing the Sabbath. And instead, they were gathering and worshiping on Sunday. And they even began to worship Jesus. And even if you know nothing about religion or nothing about the Jewish faith, you can probably guess not going to temple and worshiping a human being uh, would get you in trouble. You know that that's a pretty big deal. So the disciples, the, the early church, didn't just risk losing their culture, didn't just risk losing their, their, their former religion and their family and their people, which they did, but they also risked their eternal souls. They also risked, uh, they were not doing what they knew God told them to do through the law. They were choosing to do something different. They risked eternity in hell, separation from the one true God, the God of their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So yes, these, these early disciples were skeptical. And even so, even with this great, great, great risk, they saw something in the person of Jesus Christ that made them believe that made them, not just their hearts change, not just their intellectual assent, you know, agree that, well, maybe he is divine, maybe he is fully from God, but made them change their entire lives. Many saw Jesus' signs and believed in his name. They saw his miracles that no one else could do unless they were from the true God. These signs, these miracles were proof to them that God was doing something new, something unexpected, that they weren't even looking for something so great that it demanded that they risk everything, literally everything. And many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So it's okay to see a sign, to, see, to, to let an experience uh, change your life, to see something powerful by God, to hear from him and let that change you. Yet, we also have to be careful not to only put our trust in the miraculous, or only say, well, God, I will believe in you. I will follow you. I will trust you if you show up in a miraculous way, if you speak to me audibly, if you give me a sign. Seeing signs and miracles are fantastic and are a blessing, yet they are not needed for faith. They're not needed for faith. Nor is seeing a sign or a miracle guaranteed that someone will have faith. We often think that, well, I struggle with doubts. I, I, my faith is not very strong. I, I wrestle with, is it true or is it not? Can I trust the Bible or not? If I just had a sign, then I would believe. If I saw something supernatural, miraculous, if God spoke to me, then I'd for sure believe. But we're fooling ourselves if we think that. And we all have thought that at least once, if not a thousand times. But if we read this story, if we read this account of Jesus' life, we see many people that see and experience Jesus Christ and his ministry and his miracles, and yet 
still don't believe. I mean, think about Judas. Judas was one of Jesus' disciples and chose to sell out the divine incarnate Son of God for a few pieces of silver. Or even Thomas, who did not betray Jesus, he abandoned him, but did not betray Jesus, still saw so many miracles, but still doubted. We're very tempted as humans to believe that uh, we'd have full faith, we'd have no more doubts, we'd have you know, all this trust if God would just show up in a miraculous type way like he's doing here in John 2. Yet, let's just stop and think, not just Judas and, and, and Thomas, think of the tens of thousands of people that saw Jesus do miraculous things. According to the Bible, tens of thousands of people saw him heal lepers and, and cast out demons and, and walk on water and feed five plus thousand, ten thousand people at one time with the sack lunch that didn't follow Jesus as, as the divine Savior. Tens of thousands of people saw Jesus' miracles yet didn't follow him. So if that's true, we have to kind of step back and think, well, maybe if I did see something miraculous, maybe eventually I'd forget about it or become apathetic or explain it away. So miracles and signs and wonders are great. We can pray for them. We can desire them, but they do not bring saving faith. And even if we do see them, it's not a guarantee of faith. So pray. Pray that God would heal miraculously. Pray that God would change people's hearts of stone and bring salvation in a situation that seems utterly impossible. Pray for signs. Pray for God to show up. Pray for God to speak to you. Yet we cannot put signs and miracles, or yet we must put signs and miracles in their correct place. Great. A gift, a blessing at times, but not needed. We'll come back to this uh, later in our, in our uh, sermon here today. So our passage continues after this first verse, that even though many, many are seeing Jesus' miracles and signs and are trusting in him, it doesn't go the other way. Did you notice that? It's not, it's not reciprocal here. Jesus knew what was in humanity, and that was bad news. Bad news for us. We, we hear these verses, and we might be confused. But Jesus, on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he knew what was in man. And you might be reading these verses and and being confused and saying, why doesn't Jesus trust humanity? I mean, why doesn't Jesus trust me? I I know me and I really like me a lot. So what, you know, Jesus, why, why are you keeping humanity at arm's length? What's going on here? If we read this trend or this, our same passage in a different translation, they they hit on this wordplay that John is trying to do. Uh, So let's read it in a different translation. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. So here we see that Jesus is being trusted. People are trusting in him because of his signs and miracles, but he does not trust them because he knows what is in their heart. Jesus knew people's hearts. Jesus knew their motives, and because of that, he didn't 
trust them. So this is actually bad news. Jesus knowing our hearts, Jesus knowing humanity intimately is bad news. If you uh, know the, the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of human's history, what happens? God uh, blesses our, our first parents, puts them in paradise. They rebel against him. They don't trust him. Sin enters into the world. And what's the first thing that they do? They're full of shame. They hide. They run away from God because they know that they are sinful and God is holy. They know that he is good and they have rebelled against him. And again, you might just argue, okay, well, back to our passage here. Well, you might just say, well, those are just ignorant, uh, self, selfish, ancient people. I'm different than that. I'm enlightened. I went to a liberal arts college. I live in Minneapolis or St. Paul. I uh, watch YouTube videos. I read articles. I'm much more self, uh, self-controlled, self-motivated. I'm much more altruistic than them. If Jesus looked inside of me, he would not keep me at an arm's length. And this is exactly what culture tells us and what we want to believe, right? We deeply want to believe this. No one wants to believe that uh, if Jesus looked at us apart from faith in him, he would keep us at an arm length because he knows our hearts and who we are. I was listening to a podcast interview with Elon Musk. He's the um, owner of Tesla and SpaceX. And he uh, basically was arguing that we all know, and this guy's brilliant, you know, and he's arguing, we, we all know that humanity is, is basically good. Yes, there's, there's 1% that are the scumbags that should be put in prison, but uh, almost all in, uh, of, of humanity is very good, basically good. And it's just a very popular opinion that we hear all the time, whether it's uh, Disney movies, whether it's uh, our, our parents and our teachers, or whether it's Elon Musk, it's very common to hear this. But I'm sorry, Mr. Musk, John here and, and, and God himself would disagree with you. In First John, which is also written by John, he writes this later, he says, if we claim that we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. And it's not just God or John who tell us this, but also Jim Carrey. If you remember, uh, this is actually quite a long time ago, but there's this movie called Liar Liar, and it's really funny, and it's funny because I forget what happens. I think he's a lawyer and his, his, his daughter blows out her birthday candles. I wish my dad would just not be able to tell lies. And the, the movie's funny because this guy, who's kind of a scumbag, cannot lie anymore. And so everything that's in here and everything that's in here comes out of his mouth. And he gets in so much trouble. And people realize just what a, a perverted, selfish, greedy person he is because he cannot lie. He has to show what's in his head and, and uh, in his heart. And in this, we, we are reminded, whether, you know, I'm sure we know this, but we're reminded again that sin is, is not just actions, right? It's not just what we do with our hands or with our mouth or with our body. Sin is also in our heart. Sin is also motive. Sin is also our thoughts and our desires, so think about this. If you've ever tried to keep your true motives or your thoughts or your past or your desires private or secret, you get this, right? The reason we don't want everyone to know 
our deepest desires or what our dreams were last night when we were sleeping or our motives when we do something or how we naturally respond when we see someone. The reason we don't want everyone to see those is because we know that there's something wrong with that. There's something broken in our response and we don't want people to see that. We're embarrassed by the thoughts that come to our mind. We're ashamed of our motives. We're disgusted by our desires that come to us in secret when no one else can see. We're not fully good in our core. We're not uh, selfless. We're not kind. We're not altruistic. In fact, our heart and our thoughts and our motives and our desires are just daily reminders that we are sinful and we need something else to change us. Or another way to put it, think about if you had a thought bubble over your head constantly and everyone could see it. This uh, minion says, if uh, thought bubbles appeared above my head, I would be screwed, right? And that's funny because that's true, right? Think if everyone could constantly see what was going on in your head, in your mind, right? We're not fully good to the core. There's, there's something wrong with us. Even if we are Christians, uh, us too, we realize that our hearts, our motives, our desires are broken. They're sinful. And that's what Jesus is seeing here. He knows what is in the heart of humanity. So think about how this plays out uh, with our family, right? If they could see our thought, bubble, our thought bubble above our head, they would see how selfish we are, how so many of our actions and our words are just trying to serve ourselves, not the other people in our family, or how much we just love ourselves or maybe love our phone as opposed to our kids or our spouse or brothers or sisters or the thoughts that come to your mind when you are angry or when you are hurt. Think about if there's a thought bubble above your head when you're interacting with your boss at work. To be clear, this never happens to me. This is hypothetical. Uh, telling your boss what you really thought of them or how not hard you were working or the corners that you were cutting or the rules that you were breaking at work or, or with your friends. If you were hanging out with your friends and talking with them and there's a thought bubble above your head and they saw that you were friends with them, sometimes just because of what you got out of it, because they were fun, or they were really kind, or they were good listeners. And at that particular day, you could care less about what you gave them. You were just trying to receive from them. Or maybe uh, or when your friends let you down or sin against you, you don't immediately turn the other cheek. You don't immediately forgive and show compassion or give them the benefit of the doubt. And this is just... Uh, more support to remind us if we really truly look inside and think about it, we are imperfect, we're broken, we're with sin. Even if our actions maybe one day are all sinless, our hearts, our motives, our desires uh, say something different. Sin has poisoned us and affected our whole lives, our actions, our thoughts, our motives, our desires, even if on the outside the world looks at us and sees no sin, sees that we look good. And we might even, even at this point, still say, okay, I kind of get that I jump on this path often of being, you know, a jerk. But I kind of feel like I'm Switzerland. I kind of feel like before God, I'm, I'm neutral, right? And it's kind of, you know, I can choose, you know, I got a, a devil and an angel on each of my shoulders. Some days I can, you know, choose the path of walking uh, towards Jesus and, and listening to him and being obedient. And other days I'm kind of tempted by the devil on 
my shoulder, but I, I think in my, in my normal state, I'm kind of just neutral, and I can pick either way. But Jesus doesn't let us come to this conclusion, that despite it being unbelievably popular in, in a culture, or what we would like to believe. Jesus doesn't let us think that in our original state is just being neutral towards him. Later in John, we're going to see Jesus confront some religious people that say, we are sons of Abraham. And because of that, we're also sons of God. And we are very proud of ourselves. And Jesus has some really harsh words to these people. In John 8, he says to them, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Jesus says, you think because you're ethnically Jewish that Abraham is your father and, and relatedly that you are a son or daughter of God. And he says, no, in your sin, you're actually not. Your father is the devil. And something needs to happen before you can be adopted into God's family. Jesus, knowing what is deep within humanity, fully and truly knowing our hearts, motives, and desires, it's terrifying. It's actually bad news. The divine, all-powerful judge of the entire universe, he knows your past. He knows your desires. He knows the perversion in your heart. He knows your motives and even doing the good things. He knows how selfish you are. He knows your dark heart. Jesus truly and fully knows humanity, knows us, knows you and me, and that's bad news. We cannot fool him. We cannot hide. We cannot sugarcoat it. We cannot remove our thought bubbles before him. We cannot do enough penance to earn our forgiveness. We can't bribe him. We're guilty. We're impure. We're evil. And this is bad news if the only part of the story is that King Jesus is ruling and he knows us and we're guilty. Bad news because perfection and purity and innocence, that's the curve that we're graded on. Not being better than our neighbor or trying kind of hard. The judge of the universe knows our pasts. He knows your thought life. He knows your motives. He knows what you desire, what you want, your hidden feelings and motives. And that's scary. Yet, the story doesn't end there. The story doesn't stop with bad news. Dr. Catherine Butler writes this. She says, Sin plunges us into a pit from which we cannot escape. Guilt swallows us whole. But God does not abandon us in those depths. In Christ, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Our gracious, or ours is a God, ours is a gracious God and merciful, and in Christ we are forgiven. And so because of that, because of the gospel, Jesus knowing humanity can be good news. He's a personal savior. He know, everything we said is still true, and still he loves you. He loves us. In the gospel, this can be good news. Who else loves like that? Who else forgives like that? Maybe your parent. Maybe a best friend. Maybe a spouse. But who else knows you perfectly, everything you've done, and fully loves you in response? Listen to what Tim Keller says about this. 
To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial, which is kind of a lot of our realities, at least some of the time, right? People are impressed with us because we have a good social media feed or because we're really on a good behavior when we're around them or because, you know, when they see us uh, not behind closed doors, we're funny or we're kind. But to be loved but not known, it's comforting, but it's superficial. They don't really love and, and know the true self. He continues, to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. Right? So that's why we work our butts off at work, to have people respect us. That's why we make a lot of money, so that people will be impressed by us. That's why we work hard in the gym or, or in our personal life, so that people are impressed with us and, and want to be around us. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. And that's the way that God loves us. He knows you fully. He knows you fully. And does not reject you, does not give up on you, is not disgusted by you, does not hold his nose and, and scoff when he sees your heart, your past, your secret desires, but he offers love towards you. He offers acceptance if you would trust in him. This love we have in Christ gives us an unshakable confidence, a security that we, we cannot lose. And in Christ, we are both known and loved. He's a personal Savior. That doesn't just save a church and kind of cover his eyes because he's afraid at what he'll discover if he looks inside your hearts and minds and pasts. But he knows you. He knows me. He knows us intimately and still loves you, still died for you, still is infatuated with you. Do you believe that? He knows you without the Instagram filter, without the bank account, without the big house or the title or your education or your accomplishments. And he still loves you. Yes, we are guilty. The first part of the story, the bad news. We are broken. We are incomplete. We are sinful. Yet, Jesus knows all of that and still wants to show you mercy. Wants to show grace. That's his deepest desire for you. Ephesians 2 speaks of this. As for you, you are dead in, the tres- in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the devil. Right? Jesus said we're, we're children of Satan apart from saving faith in Jesus. We were by nature deserving of wrath. We were by nature guilty, deserving of punishment because God's a, a good, just God. But because of his great love for us, not because we cleaned up, not because we hid all the bad stuff, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we're still dead in, our, in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So we were spiritually dead. We were following Satan, our father, in our own sinful hearts. And Jesus knew that. And it is while we were still sinners, while we were still guilty, while we were still messy and undesirable, 
That's when Christ died for us. And we read here that our Savior is not just uh, dutifully giving us mercy, but he wants to show us mercy. He is rich in mercy. Dean Ortland, in his fantastic book called Gentle and Lowly, writes about this. He says, The Bible says that God is not tight-fisted with mercy, but open-handed. Not frugal, but lavish. Not poor, but rich in mercy. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained. It is flood-like. It is sweeping. We skipped the middle verse when we read 1 John 1 earlier, but this, this is what the middle verse says. So sandwiched in between, we are sinners. God calls us sinners. He knows our hearts. If we say we're not sinners, we're lying. And sandwiched in between those two truths is verse 9 that says, Yes, you're a sinner, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what this means is that he promises us salvation if we repent and believe. If we confess our sins and we put our trust in him alone. And here it says he is faithful, meaning he promises. He will do it. We can count on it no matter what. And it also says that he is just to forgive our sins. It is true. It is right. It is not unjust for, Jesus, for, for our sins to be forgiven. And we might wonder, well, how does that work? Why, why, why is it just that if we repent, our sins get forgiven? It seems like it's only mercy, only grace. Why is it also just? And we're going to see why it's just in just a second. In fact, Jesus' incarnation, so Jesus leaving heaven, coming to earth, adding humanity to his divinity, and his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, it's actually not just uh, one of the signs and miracles that the New Testament speaks of, but rather the, the, the rest of the Bible says Jesus' death and resurrection is the sign, is the miracle, is the one that all the other previous signs and miracles and wonders pointed ahead towards. It's the sign and miracle that we can all see. You might not get a miracle in your life. You might not get a sign, but all of us get the sign, which is Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's not just one that might give us faith, might give us more trust, might give us some belief, but the Bible says this sign, the cross and the empty tomb, is the ultimate sign that guarantees salvation. It's the one thing that we can put, we can see and believe in that will not leave us and that actually gives salvation. It's the ultimate sign, the greatest miracle, the most important, defying wonder of natural law that leads to faith and belief is the cross and resurrection. So Jesus healed many lepers and sick people, but guess what? They eventually died. Jesus fed 
tens of thousands of people. And guess what? They became hungry again. Jesus even raised people from the dead, but they died later. Yet this is the sign that brings eternal life and something that is ultimate, something that is eternal and won't change. Again, it's not wrong for us to want or desire a sign or God to reveal himself to us. Yet when people asked Jesus to give him a sign, we're going to just read a passage. People asked him, they came up and said, hey, miracle worker, show us a sign so that we can believe. So that you're, we can know that you're not just tricking us, but you're really God in flesh. If I'm going to risk everything, my family, my religion, my eternal state before God, prove it to me. And Jesus' response was to look backwards and to look forwards. To look backwards to an ancient, strange story in Israel's history of God's miraculous salvation and to look forward to what Jesus was about to accomplish in a similar yet infinitely greater way. So in Matthew we read, people come to Jesus. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, so they're actually trying to trap him. They have negative motivations here. They come to Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So these scribes and Pharisees, they had seen and heard countless signs and miracles and wonders. They come to him with sinful motivations, trying to trap Jesus. And he says, look backwards to this ancient story about this prophet Jonah and how God did something miraculous and led to much salvation. And then that's going to be a picture, a sign of what I am about to do very soon. Jesus says, this is the sign. I will be executed. And I will be buried for three days in the heart of the earth, just like Jonah. And like the prophet Jonah was, was resurrected from that death, from that tomb, I too will be resurrected out of the heart of the earth. Jesus says, that is the sign. That's the sign I will give you, the cross. Jesus says, and also like Jonah, I will not stay in the tomb, but will be raised out of it by God and will bring a message of repentance and salvation to those who are previously in the family of Satan, who are in his clutches and are prisoners of sin and death. Jesus says, this, this is the sign that I give you. This is the sign for everyone. This is the ultimate sign. Believe in this. So just like in our passage today, the crowd saw Jesus' signs and trusted. Today, that's his invitation his call to you. Look at his sign, the ultimate sign, not just a little bread turning into a little more bread, not even just really crazy things like dead people standing up and walking again, but look at his sign, the greatest sign, and believe. You see, Jesus did not trust us because we in our sin are untrustworthy, but he invites us to trust the only trustworthy being that exists. He invites us to trust him. So trust Jesus. Not your doubts. 
Why, why do we trust our doubts? I, I know we, we all have doubts and they seem powerful and real in our lives, but why, why, do our, why are our doubts powerful? Why do our doubts, why are they more persuasive? Why are they better than the person of Jesus Christ? Trust Jesus, not your own wisdom. Trust Jesus, not your own heart. Trust Jesus, not your own mind. And trust in Jesus, not in your own hard work, your moral effort, the family name you were born into, the accomplishments that you have done, the worth that you have, the letters you have at the end of your name. Jesus knows you fully, deeply, truly, and he wants you. He wants you. So if you're a Christian here today, remember that. Remember his deep, unwavering, wave crashing over you again and again and again type of love. And if you're not a Christian here today, this is all still true of how Jesus feels towards you. And he asks you to believe, to trust in him. Not in everything in this book. The one thing he asks is to trust in him. Trust in him as a, as a trustworthy person, as someone that is worthy of, of giving your faith, even if you have still many doubts, even if you still have a dark past, even if your motives and your heart and your desire are still unclean. He doesn't ask you to clean up. He just says, look at me. Look at this, the cross. Look at the empty tomb. Believe that I love you and put your trust in me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great love for us that we especially see in Christ Jesus. His perfect life on our behalf, his death in our place, his resurrection that sealed victory for us over Satan, sin, and death, and the eternal life that we're gifted through uh, trust in you. So God, give us more faith. Please, Jesus, give us more faith. And we're tempted to believe that we would have more faith with more signs and wonders. Uh, reorient us to the sign, the sign of Jonah, the, the Savior of the world, in a tomb, in the heart of the earth for three days, and then vomited out of that tomb, victorious, to never die again, to reign forever as the first fruits of the resurrection that you promise us through trust in Christ. Thank you for this good news, Jesus. Amen.